All right, I'm going to read a long passage, and I want you to read with me if you have your Bible app. Matthew 25, we're going to go 14 to 30, okay? Here's how it goes. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he said to the one who received five talents who came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you've delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I know you're a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers, and at the coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take a bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has more will be given more, and they will have abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. (laughs) What does it mean to gnash your teeth? What does that mean? I'm seriously asking. I like. Okay, I see, like, Robbie. That was a good. That was a good impression. I like it. Um, yeah, this is scary, right? So, so this is a real message. This is a, a message of fear that comes from Jesus. It's a parable, and Jesus is actually speaking to the religious people. All right, that should be something that we know that we get. Um, but we do need to talk about the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord is a real thing. Okay, uh, we talk a lot about the love of Christ. Let's talk about the fear. Of the Lord, uh, Psalm 111 says, uh, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom." Okay, uh, and then Jesus comes around and he sort of doubles down on that. He doubles down on it in this parable, and then in Luke he says, "We should fear our God who has the power to end our lives." That's a little scary, right? Should fear the God who has the power to end our lives. What does this mean? How do we reconcile this with the loving God that we always talk about? And we're going to try to do that today. But first, let's talk about that kind of fear. How many people have that kind of fear of God or had that kind of fear of God? God has the power to end your life. You can raise your hand. Don't be afraid. A few of you. Yeah, me too. How many people like watched the left behind or read left behind or whatever? Like, and like it really damaged us, like ruined us a little bit. Like bad theology comes out of the fear of the Lord. That's a definite Thing. I know for me, I, I told you all some of my story about a month ago, and in my story I told you being eight or nine years old and, and laying in bed thinking about eternity, right? And when I was thinking about, there we go, I was looking for that, thanks. And when I was thinking about eternity, um, I wasn't thinking about like good eternity, like heaven, I was thinking about hell, right? And I was scared, like that's the fear of the Lord. And then I also mentioned that I drank Zimas in the woods. How many people drank oh Zimas in the woods? Raise your hands. <laughs> Um, and there was this one time I was drinking Zima in the woods, and I drank too many. And when we drank in the woods by the LIRR train, I grew up on Long Island. And so I started throwing up, and I was super anxious because, not because I drank too much and I was in high school, and I was anxious not because, you know, the LIRR trains were coming by and people could see me. 
I was anxious, like legitimately, because I was like, if God comes back, if Jesus comes back right now, this is really going to hinder my chances of getting into heaven. Like, I was legitimately afraid while I was puking from drinking too many Zimas in the woods. <laughs> but it's real. That fear is real. There's a pastor who said, you know what, we have to pay attention to that fear. He's a prominent pastor. He said, too often pastors sugarcoat fear. They say that, that, uh, that fear is just reverence and awe for God. And what we should do is we should be really afraid. And so I think a lot of times what we are or what we have been in the past is really afraid. We walk around on eggshells, afraid that we're going to offend God. And, and frankly, that's not a God at all. What that is is a, a, a cosmic boogeyman. Okay? That's what that is. It's a cosmic uh, terrorist, somebody who is waiting with a syringe full of poison to punish us the second we get something wrong. And then I would say that's not a faith or belief in God at all. What that really is, is that's just us deciding on a few ways to live life, a few morals. And from those morals, we create this cosmic boogeyman who will strike us down if we don't adhere to the morals we created. Really, it's not a faith in God at all. It's a faith in us. Okay, That's what it is. So one of my favorite theologians, this guy Pete Enns, he says this. He says, sweating bullets to line up the Bible with our exhausting expectations to make the Bible something that it's not meant to be isn't a pious act of faith, even if it looks that way. It's actually thinly masking fear of losing control and certainty. It's a warning signal that deep down we actually don't trust God at all. And I think he's right with that. I absolutely think he's right with that. So what we end up doing is we end up saying, you know what, I'm going to read the Bible a certain way because to read it any other way means that I'm going down a slippery slope. And oh, God forbid I go down that slippery slope, I'm going to be in real trouble, right? We hear that all the time. Or, or what we do is we say, I need to pray, and I need to pray this way. I was talking to a woman last week, and uh, she said to me, I, did, I missed church last week because I had to watch my granddaughter. And I was like, we didn't even have church last week. And she was like, and you're okay with that? God will forgive you? I'm like, oh, yes. It's going to be all right if we skip church. Like, God will forgive us. But that's the kind of mentality that it brings. It brings this mentality where God is not God to have faith in. God is just some boogeyman that we make up to make sure we're living the best moral life we can live. And that is it. And when I hit college, I got into college, and I remember, I'll never forget, this is a true conversation that really happened. I was sitting in line at the cafeteria, and these two women were talking, and one of them said to the other, you know, driving over the speed limit is a sin, and so I never move out of the left lane when people want to pass because I don't want to sin. And I thought to myself, that is, that is real. Wow, you, what you just said is real. Um, and I said, I never want to worship that God again who people are so afraid of that they won't even move out of the left lane to let another car pass. <laughs> and so I didn't. I ditched that God. How many people ditched an angry God? You ditch your angry God? A few of us. If you're like me, what I did is I ditched an angry God, and I said, that angry, violent God, that wrathful God, the boogeyman, the terrorist, the, the, the God holding a syringe over us, ready to strike us with poison, that God doesn't exist, and therefore no God exists. That's what I decided upon. So what did I, what did I do? I traded it in one form of fundamentalism for another form of fundamentalism. Right? That's what I ended up doing. And so I said that, that there's no God that exists. And really, just like people are burying their talents in the ground when they're afraid walking on eggshells around this boogeyman God, so I buried my talents in the ground because I was afraid to explore that there might be something bigger than the angry God that I knew. Right? So I, might be af I was afraid to take the journey away from deconstruction and toward, towards reconstruction of a God who might just be infinite and unimaginable. But I didn't do that. I said, the angry God's gone. There's no God whatsoever. And so really, I can just paraphrase that, that Pete Enns quote again, and I could say this. 
Um, I could say ditching an angry God without doing the hard work of looking at God through culture and context is actually thinly masking fear of losing control and certainty. It's a warning signal that deep down we don't actually trust God at all. How many people have been there before where you ditch that angry, violent God and then you're like, I guess there's nothing. Anybody go through that stage? Just me. But I think we do that. I think what we do is we bury our talents in the ground. We say, I'm afraid to explore or dig deeper. So we're at Epiphany. And Epiphany season is a great time because what we're doing is we're celebrating the arrival of Jesus. Jesus was born on Christmas Day. Not really, but we celebrated that day, right? And so Jesus is here. And so what are we celebrating? Well, God says, hey, I want you to see what I've always been. I want you to see who I always have been and what I've always cared about. And so I come as, as God incarnate. I come as Jesus, a brown-skinned, Middle Eastern refugee, right, in a lower socioeconomic class. I come to show you what it is I care about and who it is I care about, who it is that I love. And so we see the life of Jesus and we get God. It's this good news. And so what uh, God calls us to do in Epiphany, he says, Jesus is here, look at Jesus and move forward. And so what I want us to do is I want us to change the lens of fear, okay? The fear that we've talked about up until this point is not real, it's not the fear of God that we're talking about. It's not the fear that Jesus is talking about in this parable. What I want to do is I want to move us to something that I like to call holy fear. Maybe not the best name, but we're going to use it for today. Holy fear. What is holy fear? Holy fear is actually good news. And so remember when I said at the beginning Jesus is talking to the religious people, right? When he's telling this parable, he's talking to them. And so he's talking to the religious people who are afraid that going to... Going to um, or reading scripture in a different way is going to send them down a slippery slope. Or if they break one of the 613 Jewish laws, that they will be sent into a fiery torment. He's talking to those people. And he's saying, you know what you're doing? You're burying your talent in the ground. You're, bet, you're betting all your money on getting, uh, standing before God on Judgment Day. How many times have we heard that? Standing before God on Judgment Day and going, God, you got nothing on me. Nothing, because I've, I've made sure that I've pointed all this out and I've done all this right. And what Jesus is saying is like, be more like the first two. And what do the first two do? Well, the first two are practicing holy fear. So what's a simple way of talking about holy fear? This is what holy fear is. Holy fear is like, it's like skydiving. Holy fear is like doing your first stand-up routine at an open mic. Holy fear is Upright Citizens Brigade when you decide to sign up for it. Holy fear is having a conversation with someone who doesn't agree with you and being open to changing your mind. What am I getting at? Holy fear is really risky, and it could hurt us, and it's kind of dangerous. Holy fear is one of these things where we, we might not actually get through this, but when we do, oh, it's good. When we do, we come out better. When we do, we come out fuller. When we, when we do get through it, we come out with an experience that makes life worth living. That's what holy fear is. And so when we look at these two, uh, the first two servants, they're not sitting there. You know, it's not like they, they, they took risks. It says they had to make trades. It says that, you know, there was a chance they were going to lose that money. And yet they were the ones that, re, that were rewarded. That is holy fear. And so in this epiphany season, I want us to practice holy fear. Fear. In this epiphany season, what's going on is that Jesus comes to us and says, hey, uh, God has always loved you. You've always been loved. Yes, you who drank too many Zimas in the woods, God loves you. 
deeply. You who has a lot of shame, God loves you deeply. You who have been kicked out of your old community because you've been told that your identity or your orientation is wrong, you are made perfectly. You are loved. You who uh, is afraid, you who uh, suffers from mental illness, whatever the thing may be, you are made perfectly. You are loved, and God wants to partner with you in bringing peace to this place. And peace to this place looks a lot like Jesus, the light. And here's the thing. When you look at the life of Jesus, and we talk about this every week, Nothing that Jesus did was safe. None of it. To have the same courage to do the system-changing, life-altering, power-breaking, subversive work of Jesus Christ is a lot like skydiving. It's a lot like standing up at a comedy club. It's scary. And it might not work out. In fact, last I checked, it didn't work out that well for Jesus for a bit. The religious people wanted to kill him. Are we ready to have that same holy fear? Church, how do we practice holy fear? I started reading this book again. You might have heard of it. It's called Huck Finn. Anybody read it? Y'all picked it up in college and high school and never read it again, right? I started reading it again because there was an excerpt that really that got me. Um, and I'm going to read that excerpt to you. But it's this passage, right? And, and Huck Finn, just to remind you, because I know high school is a long time ago, just to remind everybody, um, you know, Huck Finn, is, he's sailing down the river, and he's sailing down the river with a runaway slave named Jim. And so uh, Jim is his best friend, but Huck has, like, terrible guilt. He's got terrible, terrible guilt because he thinks that God is angry with him for harboring a runaway slave. Uh, in the time that Mark Twain wrote this, uh, if you were a Christian in America, you were probably pro-slavery. Why? Because when you read your Bible literally, the Bible condones slavery. That's why we take the Bible seriously, but not literally. Anyway, I'll get off my high horse. Anyway, so... Huck has this choice to make. He's worried, he's scared, he thinks he's going to go to hell, he thinks he's bothering God. So, so what he does is he says, I'm going to write a letter to Jim's master, letting uh, Jim's master know where he is. So that's what he does. He writes a letter to Jim's master. And that's where I'm going to pick it up. And here's the excerpt that I'm going to read for you. I felt good and all washed and clean of sin for the first time I'd ever felt so in my life. And I knew I could pray now. But I didn't do it straight off. I laid the paper down, I sat there thinking, thinking how good it was that all this happened so, how near I came to being lost and going to hell. And I went on thinking, and I got to thinking over our trip down the river, and I see Jim before me all the time, in the day and in the nighttime, sometimes the moonlight, sometimes storms. And we were floating along, talking and singing and laughing, but somehow I couldn't seem to strike no places to harden me against him. And he would always call me honey and pet me and do everything he could to think of me and how good he always was. And at last I struck the time when I saved him by telling the men that we had smallpox aboard. And he was so grateful. And said I was the best friend old Jim ever had in the world and the only one he's got now. And then I happened to look around and I see that letter I wrote, the one telling Jim's master where he is. And I took it up and I held it in my hand. And I was trembling because... I got to decide forever betwixt two things, and I noted. it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath, and then says to myself, all right then, I'll go to hell. Holy fear is going to hell with Huck Finn. That's holy fear. Holy fear is doing the right thing even when we might lose everything because of it. That is holy fear. Holy fear is God calling us into affirmation 
and to point out injustice, not because, not because necessarily it's the moral thing to do, but because it's the right and good and affirming thing to do. Church, if we're going to practice holy fear, we're going to go to hell. And we're going to go to hell with Huck Finn because that's what holy fear looks like. So how do we do that? How do we practice it? I think anytime we do see injustice, we call it out, no matter where it might be. I think as a church, what we do is we look around this room and we see people who are in need and we say, I'm practicing holy fear by entering into relationship with others. Even though it's scary for me and even though I might already have enough friends, but I'm going to do it anyway because I might make all the difference. Holy fear is saying that I'm going to tackle and challenge any kind of Christian morality that marginalizes or oppresses another human being. That's what holy fear does. Holy fear says, you know what, the person standing before me might be considered a sinner by some, but I'm going to go to hell with that person instead of telling them that they are condemned. That is what I'm going to do. That is the holy fear that our church gets to practice. Now, personally, personally, what does holy fear look like? You know what it looks like for me? Every morning I wake up and I choose to believe all this. I choose it. People say, how do you know? How do you know that God is real? How do you know that Jesus died and rose again? I say, I don't know. I choose it. I choose to believe it. And that's a scary thing to wake up every morning to choose to believe in this thing, that Jesus is here, that Jesus is at work. And maybe that's what you have to do. Maybe that's a choice you have to make every day. I choose to believe. Holy fear for me is choosing to believe against all logic and against everything that I'm ever thinking that prayer actually works. And then going ahead and praying every day. That is what holy fear feels like for me. Holy fear for me is believing that even though the most broken of my relationships can be redeemed because there might be a God who cares enough about that relationship to work with me to fix it. That is holy fear. It's the courage to take those steps even though those steps seem ridiculous. It's a courage to affirm people even when affirmation means you're going to lose something. And believe us, our church has done a ton of that. That's holy fear. Holy fear is to look at our messy and imperfect church and go, wow, this church is a messy and perfect place. And to say, I'm going to commit to it anyway. And I'm going to choose that commitment. That is holy fear. So what's going to happen is the bands, they're going to come up and they're going to play. And I want to think about the times where we have been burying our talent in the ground. How have we been playing it safe? Because we're afraid. What are the chances we haven't taken? How have we not practiced holy fear? And today I want to challenge you to do just one thing. Maybe it's the choice to believe. Maybe the choice to pray. Maybe the choice to raise your child a different way. Maybe the choice to see injustice and to speak out on injustice even when it means your family members and your friends are all going to go, what happened to you? Maybe it's doing that even though your old church friend goes, I'm going to pray for you, you're lost. Maybe that's what practicing holy fear is. And when we come up to take communion, what we get to do is we'll come up and we'll take it. We're going to get to say, you know what? I'm celebrating a Jesus who had the courage to be subversive and life-changing and change history for all of us to the point of death. But then celebrating the fact that death does not get the last word. Do we have that courage? If so, let's do it. Let's be subversive. Let's choose to stand up on stage or jump out of a plane or whatever it is we have to do to practice our holy fear. Amen? Amen. Jesus, thank you.
for setting an example of what this Christian journey looks like. Thank you for setting an example of having it be scary and having it be something that is terrifying, having it be something that sends us to hell, but having it make all the difference for your creation and your people. Help us to change the world like you did. And when we don't, we're so thankful for the grace that comes through your death and resurrection. We pray this in your name. Amen.